had a message in my heart for a while to talk about, something that's been brewing in me. Before I go on, I just want to say, I have this message, but if you're online with us, <laughs> welcome online viewers today. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. Maybe you're, you're on vacation and you're traveling. Maybe you're homesick. We're praying for you. But thank you for joining with us, and I'm glad that you're going to receive a word today as well. So thank you. And, and I just want to say this message has been brewing in my heart for a while to talk. And something that might hit a chord with some of you, hopefully shed a light on the subject of this. But I truly believe that we can turn our misery into a ministry moment. And I know that I went through something so that I can be a voice for others. So I'm going to talk to you today about overcoming depression. If you've ever struggled with depression, or maybe you've never struggled with depression, you may know somebody or love somebody that's been through depression. I believe this word is for you, but even not, if you're going through something else that's just as overwhelming, maybe as anger or unforgiveness or fear, I believe that you can receive a word today because I want to expose the lies of the enemy, the enemy that's telling you that they, you can't go on. I believe that there's hope for you today. Some of you may say and look at me and go, you overcome depression. How can that be? You don't seem like you've went through anything like that. Not you. But when I was 32, after my last son was born, I went through, I was diagnosed with postpartum depression that actually grew into a major depressive disorder with suicidal thoughts, and I had an anxiety disorder with panic attacks. First of all, I want to say that I am not a counselor or a doctor. I do believe Jesus is the answer for everything. But I'm going to tell you just what my experience was with it and what the Bible says about it. For those of you who don't know, depression feels like this. You are numb to anything and everything going on around you. Nothing matters. You don't want to eat. You can't sleep. The things that normally go on around you, it's like they're happening without you even being there. In fact, the more that's going on, the more overwhelming it can be because you feel like that must mean that you're breathing. So you're going to have to get up and do something. You know, the fact that just getting up and trying to eat, the idea of putting two pieces of bread together to get something to eat seems so hard to do. In fact, you're laying there in a stare, not really wanting to interact with anybody. You know you've got to let the dogs out, but you really think, I could care less if they pee on the floor. You know that water bill needs to be paid, but you think, it can wait. After all, who needs water if you're not even showering? And then you think, I need to get dressed. But why do I need, get, need to get dressed if I'm not even going anywhere? And if I do, probably just putting a jacket over my PJs would be just fine. <laughs> and anxiety is even worse. It's like, you know when you're dreaming and you, you are having a nightmare and you wake up from the nightmare and you're thankful that you woke up from your nightmare? Anxiety is the opposite. It's like you want to go to sleep so that you can escape your nightmare, but then wake up only to realize you're right back in your nightmare. When you're sleeping, and you, I know everybody this has happened to you, you're sleeping and you're, you feel like your body is falling and you jerk yourself awake and your heart is pounding and you're sweating and you're wide awake. That's exactly what anxiety is, except for you never wake up. And it happens over and over and over again. 
Depression affects over 16 million people in America alone every year. Depression is a mood order characterized by anhedonia, which means you can't experience pleasure anymore. So those things that once caused you pleasure, you can't experience that pleasure anymore. Depression is also characterized by extreme sadness, poor concentration, sleep problems, loss of appetite, feelings of guilt, hopelessness, and helplessness. Plus, there's this stigma on talking about depression. If I came to you and told you I have a cold and I'm not feeling that well, you don't think anything less of me. In fact, you tell me to go to the doctor because some part of my body is dysfunctional or sick. But if I were to come to you and tell you something's not right, I'm depressed, when the brain gets dysfunctional or sick, we just don't want to talk about it. And we even think about that person who's talking about it. Come on now, pull yourself together, snap out of it. I personally believe that it's a trick of the enemy. Because if he can put a stigma on it and keep people from talking about it, from getting prayer on it, then you begin to isolate yourself and be all alone and you won't get deliverance on it. Because we believe it's just not cool to have that kind of a problem. I once had this friend call me. She knew I had been through and had overcome depression. And this friend had a friend that was going through depression. So she called me and she asked if I could go talk to her friend. And I said, absolutely, I'd love to. So I went over to her friend's house and started talking to her and quickly realized that this this friend was going through depression just like many, many other people. They believed they were a complete disaster. They believed that they were completely alone and that no one loved them. Well, as I began talking to this woman and talking with her about depression, I asked, well, what does your husband think about it? And she said, you know what? It's just, it's so sad. She said, I think he doesn't love me anymore. He's so distant from me that he, he doesn't even come home anymore. I feel like he doesn't love me anymore because of the depression. So I asked if I could talk to her husband, and she said, sure. So I brought the husband in. And I started to talk to the husband about, well, how do you feel about your wife's depression? And he said, well, you know, it's just so sad. I give her as much space as I possibly can give her so that she can sleep because I want her well. I know she can't do things around the house or run errands or take the kids where they need to go. So I'm out doing all of those errands for her, and I'm hardly ever home to see her. He says, I love her so much. I just want her to get well. So that's a classic case of the stigma of depression. We don't want to talk about it, and we don't know what to do about it. I suggested to the couple maybe a little bit of communication would help. <laughs> but if I can say anything about it is this, is that it's okay to not be okay. And to let you know that if you're struggling with depression, that you are not alone, and you are going to be okay. And let me say this before I move on. People in depression... They're looking for a cure. They want help. Don't think that they're not looking for a way out because they really are. They're desperately trying to find a cure. But unfortunately, because of the stigma on it, they self-medicate. And before I say anything else, the stigma on talking about depression, instead of finding the right cure for them, they'll they'll self-medicate with things like alcohol abuse or drug abuse or even worse, depression. In fact, there will be 40,000 people in America alone this year that will commit suicide. That's 110 a day. 
One of the things that has to happen is to get rid of the stigma, is to talk about it, and for us to let people come to us and say, I'm not okay, and us to not be shocked by it. But unfortunately, suicide is a permanent, irreversible attempt to solve a temporary problem. I remember the night I wanted to take my life, and I was taking a bath, because when I get into the water, I just feel so much better. And I was taking a bath, and I actually started having a panic attack in the bathtub. And I was so sick of it. I was done. I was crying my heart out to God. I I couldn't live like this. I knew I couldn't go on anymore. I was begging God to take it from me. And so I was sitting there, and I was thinking, I wonder how long it would take for the air to run out if I just slipped under the water. So I tried that, only quickly to realize that my head floats. (laughs) So I would go back under, and my head would bob, bob back up. In fact, every part of my body floats. I'm like a human buoy. You can ask my husband. So that was not a solution for me. But most people really don't want to die. They just want the pain to end. It's like if you had a broken arm, you wouldn't walk around expecting the pain to go away. You would go to the doctor and say, there's something wrong with my arm. But I've got good news for you. You don't have to die to end your pain. And I want to talk to somebody Somebody who thinks that their life would be better or even their family's life would be better if they were just not here. That is a lie. That is not true. And I've heard people say that suicide is selfish, and I want to say that it's not true either. When I wanted to die, myself was the last thing I was thinking of. In fact, I was thinking, I'm such a mess, my family can't go on like this. My family can't have a normal life because of the way I am. And I just wanted to end it. But listen, somebody who's thinking about suicide is not thinking logically. You can't put logic to how they're thinking. But you want to know how to break through, how to talk to them? Just love them. Listen to them. And just love them right where they're at. In fact, guys, if you'll put that slide on about the phone number. This is a National Suicide Prevention Hotline. 1-800-273-TALK. This is a number for anybody who's thinking about suicide. If you know of anybody, you can recommend this number to them. It's completely anonymous. They don't have to say their name. They can just talk to somebody on this hotline. It is saving lives every day. And so I'm going to ask you, even memorize. Know this number and memorize it. Because you never know when you're going to be out somewhere and you're talking with somebody and they're going through something and you're going to be thinking, I wish I had that number. I wish I knew that number. If you memorize this number, it's super easy to remember. You can, you can tell them that number. Some of you may be thinking, I can't remember numbers. I can't even remember, hardly remember my own phone number. But I just want to say, if you can remember 8675309. Okay, all of my 80s friends, get it? You can remember this number. You know, God is not silent on this subject either. The Bible has several stories that that had people that dealt with depression and how to overcome it. In fact, Jeremiah wrote a whole book in the Bible about it, and he called it Lamentations. And Lamentations is just a fancy word of saying, I'm having a bad life right now. But in Lamentations 3.17, he says, I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I've hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. 
And the gall is, it's just when, like, it's, for example, when a cow is ruminating, when they chew, I don't know if you know this about cows, but when they eat, they'll chew their food, and they'll swallow it, and then it comes back up, and they chew it again, and they swallow it, and it comes back up. And if you can imagine, each time it comes back up, it's worse than it just went down. So that's the same thing we do with overthinking. We think about something, we squash it, but then we bring it back up. We think about something, we squash it, we bring it back up. And every time we bring it back up, it's worse than it was before. So here's Jeremiah, and he was thinking of all the bad things that were happening. And he says in verse 20, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Well, of course his soul is downcast. If you keep thinking about something, you're going to get down and depressed too. That's why worshiping, singing aloud about God's goodness is so important. Because it puts our problems in the right place. It realigns them. It reminds us that it's not that our problems are so big and God is so small, but that God is so big and that our problems are small. Paul, a great leader who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, said this in 2 Corinthians 1.8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. He wanted to die. So if great men of the Bible were depressed, we need to understand that God isn't taken back by it. And he has a solution for it. So I'm going to tell you a story of four causes of depression and four solutions of depression. So if you are or you know somebody who's going through depression, this story is for you. In 1 Kings chapter 18, I'm going to be talking about the prophet Elijah. It's one of the best stories in the Bible, I think, ever to be recorded. He actually has a showdown with 400 prophets of Baal. And they were trying to prove whose God was alive and great. And so they came up with this plan, these 400 prophets of Baal and Elijah. And they said, we'll each make an altar and we'll put our sacrifice, we'll kill the animals, we'll kill animals, and we'll put them on the altar. And then we'll cry out to our God. And whoever's God shows up and burns up the altar with fire is the God who's alive. So the prophets of Baal, they did their thing. They, they built their altar and they cried out to their God and they danced and they did their chants. But nothing happened. So then Elijah comes on, and he says, I'm going to one-up you. I'm going to say, my God is so big that I'm going to soak my altar in water, make it to where it's physically impossible for the altar to burn. And he did that, and he cried out to God, and of course, God showed up, and he burned up this water-soaked sacrifice. So it was a great victory. Well, this evil king Ahab and his queen Jezebel found out about it, and they said this in 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 2. And now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Now remember, Elijah just stood face to face with 400 prophets of Baal. And he saw God do a huge miracle. And this one woman makes this empty threat. She's saying, I'm going to kill you. There was no way this should be in anything that Elijah was scared from. But he believed it and he ran. And I wonder how many times in our life does the enemy come and tell us something that's complete hogwash, but we believe it. 
So in verse 3, Elijah, it goes on to say, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, now watch the details. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. In other words, he was saying to the guy he was dealing with, I don't want you to come with me anymore. I want to deal with this on my own. And let me just say, that was a bad move, Elijah. Bad move. When you're going through something, you being alone is the last thing you need. In fact, you certainly don't need to be taking counsel from yourself if you're in a bad place. So verse 4, it goes on, it says, He came to a broom brush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough. How many of you is this your verse for this year? I've had enough. He says, so take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. So in these verses, we see four things that caused his depression. And that first thing was that he had faulty, faulty thinking. I like to call it stinking thinking. Faulty thinking comes when we're ruminating over something over and over again. And it gets worse and worse. I'm going to encourage you not to have negative self-talk. Don't do that to yourself. Research shows that depression comes when, when we are alone, alone with our thoughts, and we keep ruminating over something over and over again. In fact, they've proven that when you go outside and you're around people and you're in the sunlight, that depression will go down dramatically. I know I'm preaching to the choir today because you've chosen to get up and come to church. Some of you, there was a lot of effort for you to do that. Some of you, you come and you, you've been thinking, why do I keep doing this every week? But I want to say, you need to keep doing it. Get to church. Get to church. Get to church. Because what happens is when you come in, you're going to hear the words of life, and you're going to be encouraged, and things are going to break off in your life. That's why the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, and the God of peace will be with you. So here's the second thing Elijah did. He isolated himself. That's why we're a church of groups here at Amarillo Fellowship. And let me say it this way. Small groups are not here for your entertainment. They're a necessity. Because when you come in, you can come in and you come in and sing songs and listen to a word and leave and not say hi to anybody and actually not be changed. But that's not going to happen in a group. Hopefully when you get in a group, you get comfortable enough with some people that you trust that you're able to have the guts to take the mask off and say, can I tell you what's really going on in my life? Listen, it's so easy to isolate yourself when you're going through something. Can I just be real with you for a moment? Last week, I had just got done preparing this message, and um, last week was just a bad week, but this one day on Wednesday, it was a bad Wednesday, I thought, anyway. There was a lot of things going on in my life that it was just overwhelming to me, and I got to a point to where I was just heartsick. I was beside myself, and I didn't know what to do. It was 30 minutes before I had to come in here and lead my small group, and I was crying. I knew I needed backup. I called a couple of people in my life that I knew. I knew I need prayer, and I knew my husband need prayer. And so I called them, and they prayed over us. And you know what? I was able to pull myself together and come in, and it was the best thing for me to refocus my, my issue, my situation, on not what the problem was, but what was more important was coming in and being around like-minded people to encourage me and to step out in that. 
That's why Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So I want to say, get in a group. Get in a group. Get in a group. If there's anything in my message that you want to hear today, it's get in a group. You get some people in your life, and you're going to be okay. Because when we take the mask off and say, I'm not okay, those people are going to say, all right, I've got your back. The third thing Elijah did was because he was feeling so bad about his life and what he had done, he was now running. So he was literally being led by his feelings. You know, the whole world is validating feelings right now. Let me just say, feelings are real. They're just not true. I'm going to say that again. Feelings are real. They're just not accurate. Please don't be led by your feelings. Don't listen to them. Don't live by them. Trust me on this. Your emotions will go up and down with everything that happens in the world today. But I'm not saying feelings are bad. I'm just saying when you're being led by them, you're being led by the wrong thing. So the final thing Elijah did, so he basically had bad thinking. He isolated himself. He was being led by his feelings. And he finally said, well, I'm no better off than anyone else. So he was comparing himself. Why in the world was someone who's a prophet of God, who just battled 400 other prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Baal, and when, why would he compare himself to anybody else? He saw God move supernaturally. Let me tell you why we do it. We get on social media. We love to compare our miserable days to everyone else's highlight reels. We get on and we say, oh, wow, look at their house. It's so nice. Or we'll say, look at that trip they just went on. Man, I wish I could go on a trip like that. Oh, look at their kids. They're so sweet. Or we say, man, we see their newly remodeled kitchen, and we turn around and we look at ours, and suddenly it's all jacked up. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So we should be living for an audience of one, and that's God. So the rest of the story, in in chapter 19, Elijah lays down and he falls asleep. This is my favorite part of the story. An angel comes and wakes him up and says, get up and eat. Like, this is my kind of angel. I love to eat. The first thing that happens to solve Elijah's uh, depression is a nap. He rested. And then he got up and he looked around and there was some bread and water and he ate and drank. And then he took another nap. You can look in your Bible. It's all in there, I promise. But if people know me, knows that if I'm grumpy, it's either one of two things. I'm either hungry or I'm tired. In fact, my kids have even told me, Mom, you need to go take a nap. And I'll say, okay, I'm good with that. But he ate and he drank and he took some naps and he ate some more and then he traveled and he went into a cave and he's had a spiritual encounter with God. So God showed himself powerful to Elijah in the earth, in the wind, and the fire. It's not just a soul group, it's really in the Bible. 
But God came in a still, small voice and gave Elijah some instructions and told him to start pouring his life into some other people. And he actually, this is where he tells to take Elijah and bring Elisha under his wings and to train him. So here are four things we see Elijah do as solutions for depression. First, thir- for the first thing is to get healthy physically. Slow down a little bit. You've got to take some more naps. Some of you are in here going, I plan on doing that this afternoon. You have my permission. If I want to say, eat and take some naps. <laughs> so let me ask you, though, do you Sabbath? Do you actually set aside a whole day to rest and to get alone with God? Do you give God the whole day? We need to slow down. We have to or we're going to tap out. See, in vain, we think we have to do more and do more and do more. But that's not what God says. He says in Psalms 127 too, In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. So this afternoon, take a nap. And the second thing he did was he poured his life and his heart out to God. And I want to add a little bit more in there. I would say pour your heart out to someone else as well. Somebody needs to know what you're going through. God can handle how you feel, and he isn't shocked by it. He wasn't shocked by Elijah. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. You know the story about Peter walking on water? You know, Peter was in the boat, and Jesus was out on the water, and Jesus calls out to Peter and says, Come out. So Peter gets out of the boat and actually starts walking on the water. Well, he's walking, well, then a storm comes up. And what does Peter do? He gets his eyes focused off of Jesus and onto the storm, and he starts to sink. But while he's sinking, he cries out to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, save me. See, that's something that we need to get right there. We need to go to Jesus. We wait far too long before we take our problems to Jesus. We need to say, as we're sinking, Jesus, save me, and not wait until we're already sunk. So he goes, and what was he doing? He was actually pursuing Jesus. So when he went to him and said, Jesus, save me, all Jesus had to do was reach out his hand and catch him. And we need to be that close with Jesus. Then when we go to him, we can say, now Jesus can save you in any area of your life. Don't get me wrong. But we stay way too much into our problem because we're not searching out God. So in 1 Kings chapter 19 Uh, verses 11 through 12 this is what Elijah did then a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains apart shattered the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind and the wind after the wind there was an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake after the earthquake came a fire but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire came a gentle whisper so we see that he experienced God's power and presence How long has it been since you've experienced God's power and presence? God showed him his mighty power and then talked to him in a still, small voice. God is powerful. He created the heavens and the earth, but he still wants to come and talk to you in that still, small voice. And I encourage you to sit still long enough to hear him. Shut out the busyness of the world for, the, for a while so you can hear his voice and see his power all around you. So what are those things that helps you slow down? Maybe it's a motorcycle ride. Maybe it's a walk around the neighborhood listening to the birds. Maybe it's, ri- it's watching a sunrise or a sunset. 
in, for me, my gym has a, a lounge that I can go in that is, hardly anybody's ever in there, and it's so quiet in there and peaceful, and they have soft music in the background, and I can put worship music in my ears, and I can just pray and be alone with God because at home I'm never alone. <laughs> so I can be alone there and, and really search out God. I love it. So here's the last one in 1 Kings 19, verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord said to him, go back to the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram, and also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. So what he did what we needed to and that is let God give you a new direction and a new purpose for your life the last thing the last thing we read here is God giving Elijah instructions to pour out to this person and to pour out to that person that actually bring Elisha a new person under him and train him for him to be his protege but go pour your life into something find someone or something to pour into I'm going to tell you the secret, the real secret to overcoming depression is to have something in your life that is bigger than your problems. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So focus your attention to the eternal. Give your life to something that matters. Back to my life with depression. I was sick with depression and um, I had uncontrollable crying. And I just, I was done. There was this night I was done. I knew that I couldn't go on any longer. And I was pouring my heart out to God, begging him again, please take this from me. And I was just in the middle of a deep, deep, dark time. I knew I needed something to change in my life. So I went to Ronnie and I told him, you've got to fix me. I said, either you're going to fix me tonight or I'm going to end it tonight. Well, he got scared, obviously, called the doctor and talked to the doctor, and the doctor said, go to the hospital, and he took me to the hospital. You want to know how embarrassing it is to go to a hospital uh, emergency room full of people who really need medical care, and you walk in because something's wrong with your brain? How embarrassing that is. But the woman at the desk, I really feel like it was an angel from the Lord. I remember so clearly her saying to me, oh, honey, it's all right. You're not alone, and you're going to be okay. The first time in my life, I thought, am I really going to be okay? Is this really going to, and I have hope in my life again? So we talked to the doctors, and the doctors wanted to check me into a facility, because I was really at that point, I was like, I don't care what happens to me. I'm, I'm done. You're either going to have to put me in a straitjacket, or you're going to, I'm going to end it tonight. And they said, you need to go to this facility. And my husband said, absolutely not. I, I don't want that on her. So they said, well, then we're going to have to medicate her really heavily so she doesn't harm herself. And I said, I'll do whatever. <laughs> whatever you need, <laughs> just take care of it. And so they did. So under medication and for a season of my life, I was just numb to everything. I, I didn't really know a lot. I don't even remember a lot of what was going on during that time. 
But if I was able to sought out some more help, long enough to be able to go to a professional counselor, I sought out some more help. And this professional counselor started talking to me. And he started teaching me and training me of how, what are the things that will help depression, help to get out of it. And so he's talking to me and he educated me on the importance of what I eat because what you eat really does affect your brain. And he taught me about exercise. Even if it's just to get outside and walk around the neighborhood, get, do some exercise. And then he said, um, also, um, get some adequate rest. You need to sleep. You know, when you're, you know, if you're in depression and anxiety, you just don't sleep. So you need to get sleep. But the last thing he told me was, you need to find something or someone to serve. And so I went to my church and I told them, I, I need something to do. I need to serve you. I need to do something. I don't care what it is. So they start having me doing things, you know. They, they um, had me organize their library. <laughs> I'm so proud of that today. I love that. I know some of you, I'm probably the only one in the room. That, but organization and books, whoo, I'm excited about it. So I organized their library. Um, I painted some pictures on the wall. They said, why don't you clean the bathrooms? I did that. Scrubbed toilets, took out trash. They even said, you know, why don't you plant some flowers and then come up every day and water them? And I did that. I want to say I never had an aha moment where the depression, I felt like it was completely gone. But it slowly lifted each and every day. I got a new purpose in my life. And I want to say some of you need that. You sat here far too long. It's time for you to get in the game. You need to go through the growth track. That's a starting point of figuring out what it is that you can do. And the growth track is four weeks, four easy weeks, where you find out about the church and the, and the vision the church has. You find out about yourself and, and the strengths and the personalities that God has put in you and a purpose that God has put inside of you. Then you find out about how you influence others. And then lastly, you find out how you can make a difference. And so I want to say, do something, though. Do something. Go serve. Greet people in the parking lot. Serve some coffee. Run a camera. Lead a group. But do something and watch God do something in your life in the name of Jesus. Last thing I want to say is when you're overcoming something, whether it's depression or anger or unforgiveness, the devil will try to bring it back up to you and try to think, get you to think that you were never free from it in the first place. But that's not true. You know, a couple of years ago, my son Jordan and I, we were driving around running some errands and we went to go get a drink and um, we got our drinks. We went through the drive-thru, got a drink and we're in the car driving off. And at the same time, we noticed this big, huge bumblebee. I swear it was the size of a nickel on my son's hand. Well, we saw at the same time, he screamed, I screamed, and we were freaking out in the car. Well, he flings his hand, and as he did it, it flings it onto my lap. I'm driving down Washington, and so I'm swerving all over the place because I'm thinking, the bee just stung him. Now it's stinging me. Now I can't find it, and I'm trying to watch and look in my lap where it's at, and we're screaming. So I had to pull over quickly into a residential area so we could get out of the car because we can't get out of the car in the middle of a major road. And so we pull over, and we, we flung open the doors. I mean, we couldn't get out fast enough. And we're screaming, and we're running around, and we finally cooled down enough to realize, okay, he's okay, I'm okay. So I looked at Jordan and I said, we've got to get back in the car. And he said, I'm not going in that car. 
And I'm thinking, my cell phone's in the car. I can't call anybody. My purse is in the car. It's too far to walk home. We've got to get back in that car. And Jordan said, I am not getting back in that car. And I said, okay, I'm going to go in, but you be my backup. So if anything happens, you've got to pull me out. He's like, okay. So I get in the car, and I'm looking around, and I'm looking for the bee, and I can't find it. Finally, I see it on the floor, and it was dead. (laughs) We were freaking out over a dead bumblebee. He probably killed it as the force of him flinging it killed it as it landed on my my thighs of steel, right? Is that? (laughs) No. It was probably dead to begin with. I don't know, but. But I just want to say, when you're going through something and when the attack comes and that stronghold tries to pull you back in, to fling it off, to run from it, I'm going to speak over you that it is dead. Remember what God has done in your life. God will never leave you nor forsake you. You are victorious and every attack will get easier and easier and you're not alone. You're in a, in a room full of family people that can be around you in anything.